Good morning, guys. Oh, are we on? I don't know. Um, we can dis- dismiss the kids for Children's Church. As you can see, kind of follow the leaders we have here. All right. And if someone could catch the lights, perfect. All right. So, good morning, guys. Morning. There we go. That's a little better. Um, my name is Joey Sedlock. I'm a member here at Sulphur Community Church, and today I get the privilege of continuing our uh, the Crushed Head and the Bruised Hill uh, sermon series. You know, typically, if you haven't been here before, or if you typically, or if you are typically with us, we grab a book of the Bible and we just walk through it line by line, verse by verse. But we're doing something a little bit different this year. Not exactly topical, but not exactly line by line, because we're going through the entire Bible, right? The overarching story of redemption, of God's pursuit of man uh, across Genesis to Revelation, right? And how we're doing that is we are loosely following this resource here, the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? So this is a resource that we have uh, talked a little bit about before, and we have suggested that you go ahead uh, and get, if you kind of want to follow along and know where we're going, where we've been, and and, uh, also a resource that allows you to um, easily talk about this type of thing with kids, with family, uh, in, your, in your groups, right? And we also are putting out every week a guide that goes along with um, the sermon text specifically that we go through, right? So this is texted out. There's a link to where you go to our website. And what it does is it allows you to download this document. I have a couple printed here if you Uh, don't have a way to get that text or anything. I have a couple printed here where it's just going to walk you through some of the highlights of exactly uh, what the text says, some questions you can ask for kind of your own further research and your own delving into the Word of God because the last thing you should do is just take my word for it, right? And so those are two resources that we will continue to talk about uh, as this sermon series goes on. But today... We will be in Genesis 3. If you were here last week, uh, David talked about Genesis 1 and 2, where God made everything and everything was very good. I get the privilege to talk about where everything went very bad, right? And so Genesis 3 is where we will be. Um, Thank you, Katie, for having already read that. So let's go ahead and pray and get started to see what the Lord has for us. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today. Then, Lord, we are, we are humbled by many things. We are thankful for many things. And, Lord, I pray that you are with me specifically, that you're also with us, that you, that you move in a way that only you can, Lord, that you do the work that only you can do. And, Lord, we pray that, we pray that through even, even, even as we studied the, the, the fall of man, Lord, the, the initial rebellion against your good will, against your, your good creation, that we see your grace, that we see Jesus, that we see a God who pursues the lost, and we see that that is good news as we are lost, Lord, and we'd be lost without you. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 3, if you're wondering where that is in your Bible, it's probably page like 3 or 4, right? It's at the very, very, very beginning, right? Table of contents, 
Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and then Genesis 3, right? And um, what we have here is one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture, right? We, we, have, we have man's initial disobedience, man's initial rebellion against what God had created and how God had created. And so where we left off was um, God had made everything, God had made Adam and Eve, and it was all very good. We left off, David left off with, they were naked and they were not ashamed. There was, there was no shame in the world at this point. Everything was perfect. Everything was as it should be. And today, we're going to make it about six verses until we mess that up. That's, that, hey, could have been less, could have been five verses, right? We made it six verses until that gets messed up. And what springs forward from today, from our, from our text today, what springs forward is every problem you see with the world today. Now, that doesn't mean everything, that, everything bad that has ever happened has happened because an individual person has sinned and God has, God has had retribution on them because of their sin, so he has sent bad things their way. That's not necessarily what's true. But every problem you see with the world, every, if you studied Genesis 1 and 2 over the last week, you saw how beautiful God's creation was and how it was intended to be and how everything was very good. And in the back of your mind, you take a look at the world as it is today and you, and you kind of think to yourself, what happened? Today is the explanation. And what we're going to see, what we're going to see is in, in the midst of that rebellion, in the middle of, of all going wrong, of this, of this domino effect that has affected all of mankind, God responds with grace. God responds with love. God responds with the pursuit of his people that will start a story that will span thousands of years, continues today, and will continue into the future. And so... The Bible itself can be split up into, into kind of four kind of main phases or main acts, right? We, yes, uh, uh, last week we covered the first one, which is creation. The second act is the fall, which we'll cover today. The third act is the story of redemption, which is Genesis 4 through about Revelation 19. It's, it's a long redemption, right? We, we, we know that. We've experienced that. And then we experience recreation in the last two, last two chapters of Revelation, right? So this, that's kind of how the Bible unfolds and where we are in it. We are in the story of the fall. So look with me in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Already we've learned a lot about the serpent. It doesn't appear that way because it's just one little sentence, right? But we've learned, we've learned a lot about the serpent. First thing that we learn is that he is called crafty. He's called shrewd. What that means is he's not dumb. And everything that he says is ambiguous. Everything that he says has a double meaning. And everything that he says is misleading. So pay very close attention. That's, that's what they're saying. He's crafty. Pay very close attention to the specific words that he uses. Now, this serpent, I'm going to kind of do what David did a little bit. I'm going to let you in a little bit of the controversy of these chapters because there's a lot of debate that, that surrounds these things. This serpent is typically and traditionally believed to be Satan, 
a representation of Satan possibly, or Satan specifically possessing a serpent. That's why he can speak when maybe the other animals couldn't. Or some people just say, no, at that time all the animals could talk. It was crazy. And in our translation, they even spoke English, which is even more crazy. But in Revelation 12, chapter 9, I know Revelation, the, the scariest book of the Bible, it reads, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, right? So traditionally, that's where people are going to point to saying, hey, the serpent in the garden, it was Satan. How do we know that? Because John tells us in Revelation that he is the deceiver of the world. He was the ancient serpent and he was Satan. And so what we have is we have the serpent, who's probably Satan, and he's crafty. And he's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God, and you see Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. Moses is using uh, Yahweh's proper name there. He said that the Lord God had made, and what we know already from that one statement is that God is greater than the serpent. The serpent is a beast of the field that the God created. God is greater than him. God has dominion over him. What we know already from this right here, God's already won. We're about to see a lot of fallout, but God won. And the serpent, it says he, the serpent is called a he. That's interesting, right? It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, it's interesting because remember, he's crafty. His words are ambiguous. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, or did God really say, with a, with a hint of skepticism in there, right? And so what, what we have is the most dangerous question of all mankind. Did God really say? Everything flows out of the skepticism over what God said. And you notice, If you remember verse 16 of chapter 2 from from last week, if you notice, he actually misquotes God on purpose. Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree? Well, no, God didn't say that, right? God said, you may surely eat of every tree, and that surely there is a freely, is abundantly. You may eat of every tree in the garden to your heart's content, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of that tree, for on that day, on the day that you do, you will surely die. And so he says, did God really say, he's he's sowing skepticism into Eve's heart, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? In verse 2, Eve responds at first properly, but she also gets God's word wrong. So the serpent is already manipulating her. The serpent is already misquoting God. And unfortunately, Eve does not know God's word well enough to combat the, the, the serpent's craftiness, right? And so it says, uh, verse 2, and the woman, Eve has not been named yet. It's just, you know, we've been studying the Bible for tens of thousands of years, so we know that is Eve. But it says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve's response isn't accurate. She doesn't know God's word well enough to combat the craftiness of the serpent. And so she said, we may eat of the tree in the garden. And what's interesting about that is she leaves out the promise of generosity from God. 
For God told them that they could freely eat, that they could surely eat, that they could eat to their heart's content. And she's like, yeah, we can eat. And it's just like, no, 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 you're already leaving out the, the generosity of God, right? The, the promise of abundance from God. And then she said, but God did say, you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. And she completely adds, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never told them that they could not even touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He just said that they couldn't eat of it. So not only has Eve left out part of what God said, she's added to what has God said. And what happens is that leaves her completely unable to combat the serpent's craftiness. That's important for us, right? That's important for us. When we think forward all the way to Jesus, right? Because Jesus was tempted by Satan, right? He was tempted with worldly goods. He said that he will give him bread when Jesus was hungry. He said that he will give Jesus power over all the world. Jesus also quotes the word, but he quotes it properly. It leaves Satan powerless. When we, when we don't know God's word, or when we know fragments of God's word, or when we add things to God's word, it's no wonder that we are found borderline hopeless when we are under attack by the devil, right? by the serpent, by the world, by our own temptations. The sword that we have, it's not sharp. It, it, it's broken. It doesn't cut. It doesn't work. Because we're not properly yielding the proper word of God. And, and what we're about to see here is that though Eve doesn't know the word of God, the serpent does. The serpent knows the word of God far better than Eve, far better than you and I. And it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die as he remembers the promise of generosity. He remembers the fullness of the promise. He says, you will not, you will not surely God. Hey, Eve, let me quote the part that you left out. You won't surely die because God knows, verse five, because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil, the most fundamental lie that man has ever been told is that God is keeping something from you. God is keeping something from you. You surely won't die. All he did was take a quote from God that, that God has given to man and, and, and put not in front of it. In the Hebrew, that's literally, it's a literal quote from Yahweh and the devil just puts not in front of it. And he said, that's not true. What God told you is not fruit. It's not true because in fact, what God is doing is he has something and he's keeping it from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know God, good and evil. He has pleasures at his right hand and he is refusing to give them to you. What that does is that starts to sow seeds in the Eve's heart of, of desire. I've worked in sales for a long time, though my job now is not directly sales per se. I did work in sales for a long time. And consistently, as a salesman, if you ever want to sell anybody anything, every sales training I've ever been to they said the first thing you do is you convince the person that what they have now is not satisfying. You create a dissatisfaction with what you have now, right? So you have a truck, 
It works perfectly fine. And you're like, yeah, that's good, man. I'm glad that every time you turn the key, it starts up. But does it have GPS? It's got some dents and scratches, though. Remember when it was shiny? Remember when it was new? Man. Remember when it didn't have all the miles on it? And what happens is you become dissatisfied with what you currently have, and it makes you desire that new thing, right? And so that's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what the serpent has done. God is withholding something from you, for he knows that your eyes will be open and you will become like him. Here's the craftiness of the serpent. Everything about this statement comes true. It comes true. In verse 7, it says that their eyes were open. In verse 22, God speaking, he says, for they have become like us, knowing good and evil, right? And so everything about what the serpent's saying here is true in one aspect, but not in the aspect that Eve is thinking. I don't know if y'all have ever read The Monkey's Paw. Have you read The Monkey's Paw? Okay, y'all are not going to get this at all, right? But everything, everything about what Eve is seeking, the, uh, the serpent is saying, you will get those things. But the way that the serpent knows that this is going to play out and the way that Eve thinks it's going to play out are two radically different things. Because remember, the serpent is crafty. And the lie underneath what the serpent is saying is, you can be like God by disobeying God. How many of us believe that lie? How many of us, week in and week out, believe, I can continue to become more like God, and I don't have to read his word. I don't have to pray. I don't have to prepare my heart for worship. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do any of these things. Yeah, 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 I know scripture tells me to do these things, but I don't have to. And I can continue to call myself a Christian and I can continue to tell people that I'm pursuing Christ with all that I have. And I don't have to do these things. That's the same lie that the serpent told Eve. So verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. We have a lot, a lot of buildup, right? The story is, is building up. We're having this conversation. Eve's kind of trying to do combat with the serpent. And in 22 words, it all falls apart. And in 22 words, it says, it says that she took of the fruit and she ate. She gave it to her husband who was standing right there. We'll talk about that right in a minute. And he ate. But there was three things that Eve was really hoping to gain by this, right? She was hoping to gain good food. She was hoping to gain delight. And she was hoping to gain wisdom. Now, she doesn't have the book of Proverbs, which tells her that wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. We'll give her a pass on that. But, but that's what she was pursuing. She wanted to be wise. She wanted to be like God in, in, in many respects. We'll talk about the, what that actually means, right? She wanted good food. She wanted delight. And she, was, she had become convinced that she could find those things outside of God. 
her true intent, man's true intent, our true intent, the darkest cry of our hearts is not that there is no God, but that we are God. The darkest thing your heart could ever tell you is not that God does not exist, but that you are God. That you decide what's true, that you decide what's right, and that you are the one who hands down punishments because you are the judge and you are the jury and you are just. From the very beginning, the first lies that we ever told, the answer to did God really say leads to our desire to usurp God and be on his throne. That's the nature of our rebellion. That's the seriousness of our rebellion. When you tell yourself, I don't have to do what God has told me to do and I can still get what God has promised me to get, you are saying, because I can do those things, because I am God, because I can make up for my own sins, I don't need God. I am good enough. After all, I'm not Hitler. Right? After all, I'm not insert other historical figure that's done horrible things. And what we see is we see the beginning of the reversal of God's created order as it just unwinds. She took of the fruit and she ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate And it's interesting, it's interesting that this is the first time Adam is mentioned here. Adam is mentioned as passive, as just standing there, who was with her, and just watching as his wife is deceived by the serpent into disobeying God. What I wanted to say the scripture didn't allow me to. Neither did any of the commentaries I looked at. Because I was looking. I was like, I was like, come on, somebody got to see this. What I wanted to say was Eve actually did not commit the first sin. Adam did as being a passive husband. The scripture didn't allow me to say that. Though the scripture does allow me to say that the, that sin entered the world through Adam, not through Eve. We'll read that in Romans here in a bit. Uh, but it says that that Adam was with her. Adam was passive. Adam wasn't there saying, baby, we don't, we don't need that. Remember God's word, because God's word was actually given to Adam, remember? It was, it was, Adam was the only one created when God gave the command, do not eat of the fruit of the tree. It was his responsibility to communicate that to Eve, and, and maybe Adam didn't communicate that well, and that's why she was ill-equipped to fight against the serpent's attack. Maybe the serpent knew that. That's why he attacks Eve, not Adam, but Adam just stands there like a, like a, like a sitcom husband who doesn't know how to do anything. And just watches his wife get deceived. And then he turns and she says, eat. And he's like, and he eats. Verse 7, exactly what they wanted. They got exactly what they wanted. They didn't, they didn't, I don't think they really understood what they wanted. But in verse 7, they got what they wanted, right? The eyes of, uh, the eyes of both were open. 
and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made for themselves loincloths. That's, that's what they wanted, right? That was, that was the craftiness of the serpent. The serpent said, well, if you, if you eat this, your eyes will be open. And they're like, oh, that's great. Let my eyes be open. And their eyes were to the fact that they were naked. For the very first time, mankind feels shame. They feel exposed. They feel the need to cover up, to protect themselves. This is, this is the first time that they are feeling these things. And it says that they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. How much protection do you think fig leaves offer you to the wilderness? None. What scripture is doing is it's, it's setting up kind of archetypes, kind of this is how man typically responds to sin, right? Because with sin comes shame, and with shame comes a feeling to, to cover up. And what man does when they don't come to God is they cover up with fig leaves. They cover up with something that is temporary, that will fall away, and that is inadequate. What fig leaves? What fig leaves you got in your life? In what areas of, you life, uh, of your life are you, are you trying, without turning to God, without turning it over, without confessing it to your significant other, without confessing it to your group, are you trying by yourself to cover something up with something that is temporary and inadequate? Because this is our response. One of the debates about this text is, is he talking about two people or is he talking about mankind in general? And the answer is both and. This is a literal story about two people, but it sets up how mankind reacts to things. When you sin and that shame lands on you and your desire to cover up and not turn to God, we cover up with something that is temporary and inadequate. What is that for you? In verse 8, God makes his appearance in the story. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So, God's making his appearance into the story, right? He steps in. And what happens is, is they, they hear the, the Lord God walking in the garden. This could be a literal walking. It could, it could, it could not be. That's okay. We're just, just going to move right on past that. we 22 minutes in. And it, says, and it says that the man and the wife, they hid themselves. Now what's interesting is the man and his wife, that is the exact same phrase that is used right before uh, in chapter 2 where it says the man and his wife were naked and they were unashamed except for now that same phrase is used and it says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, right? And so the walking of the Lord in the garden, that was not weird. It was, it was, the, it was his creation hiding from him that was weird. So in verse 9, God says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. That, that was the part that was, that was off kilter. Not the fact that God was taking his stroll through the garden, but the fact that his creation hid from him. And the almighty, all-knowing God asks a question. It's a rhetorical question. He knows where Adam and Eve are. It is, a, it is a summoning of his creation. He says, where are you? God knew where they were. 
God knew what had happened. And we know that because Adam's response is not, here I am. Adam's response is an explanation for why he was hiding. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And I'm going to try not to tear up here, but in verse 11, I think it's possibly one of, the, one of the saddest questions in all of Scripture. God said, who told you you were naked? And God reveals, God lays his card on the table. He already knows. He said, did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I commanded you? Do not eat. But he says, who told you you were naked? Who told you that you should feel shame? Who told you that you were unprotected? Who has come in and lied to you? And to be honest, when I first saw that I was going to be preaching this text, I thought, oh boy, I get to rain down fire. Mankind done messed everything up and I get to hit it hard. But when I, what happened was, I haven't studied the book of Genesis since before I was a father. And now, since then I've become a father. When I look at the, when I look at the question, who told you you were naked? I think of Remy. I think of Remy when she's at school. And she has what they call a red day. Now, a red day, it's a bad day. They have different colors. Some of them mean good, some of them mean bad. Red means bad. She gets in the car and I say, baby, what kind of day did you have? And she said, I had a red day. I had a bad day. And in my mind, I know punishment has to come. Discipline has to happen. And it has to happen every time. I can't give a pass because, because she needs to know that, that I love her and that I will protect her and that, that I have her good at heart. But it breaks my heart because what I know is she's going to spend the rest of the evening in her room alone, separated from me, separated from my wife, because that is the punishment. That has to be the punishment. But what happens is, after she's in her room, and she plays with the toys for more longer than five or ten minutes, and the, and, the, and the realness of the punishment sets in, that she can't leave her room. She's not, she's not free to do that. She starts to cry every time. And I go in there, and I hold her, and I say, What happened? I got in trouble because I was hitting my friends. Why were you hitting your friends? It's the same heart that I feel that God has here where he says, who told you you were naked? Do you not understand what this is going to do? I, as a just God, I, I have to hand down some kind of discipline. You have created separation between, between you and I. What happened? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to? And I can't, I, I can't help but think God's like, you had one rule, bro. Do you, you know how many rules I'm about to put in the book of Leviticus? And you had one and you didn't do that, so I don't have a whole lot of hope that you're going to follow all them. And the man said, and this is, this is good, this is rich. The man said, the woman, the woman, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So at first I was like, Adam just blames his wife. What a joke. He was passive. He lets her sit there and be deceived. And then he's like, it was that woman. But then I noticed he says, it's the woman that you gave me. He blames God. 
He said, this is your fault. You the one gave me the woman. I didn't ask for the woman. You the one that put me to sleep and took one of my ribs. I didn't ask for that to happen. You said she was going to be a helper. Well, look at the help she did. Good job of you building a helper. God doesn't even respond to that nonsense. He doesn't respond to Adam at all. In verse 13, he turns to the woman. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, we have another kind of archetype of man. What happens when we, when, we, when we do finally come face to face with what we have done? When we have to give an account, what we do? We blame shift. It wasn't, it wasn't me. It was, it was my circumstance. My circumstance had, had created this sin within me. But let me, let me tell you, let me give you a little theology of sin. Sin is like a tea bag. When you put it in hot water... The hot water does not create tea. It pulls tea out of the tea bag. So is sin with your life. Your circumstances do not create sin in you. They pull it out of you. They pull it out of your heart. What is in your heart gets pulled out. When you get angry, you don't say things because you're angry. Your anger allows your boldness to actually speak what's already in your heart. Think about that the next time you get angry with someone. Think about that the next time you're offering an apology to a friend or to a spouse and you say, I didn't mean that. I only said that because I was angry. You said it because it was in your heart. The anger loosened up your lips. And so the Lord God says, okay. Okay. Typical human response. He doesn't even ask the serpent. He's not going to be like, well, hey, bro, what happened? Like, he understands what happened at this point. And so God then begins what is called the curse. This is the result of your actions, of our actions. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And you shall bruise, uh, or he shall bruise your head and, he, and you will bruise his heel. So, so then he, he actually curses the snake. And, and the curse is um, that he shall go on his belly and that he shall eat dust all the days of his life. And so God's, God's judgment is, is evoked. And, and since it was God himself who pronounces the curse, right, we know that the curse is going to be handled completely and totally and, and, and in this case, immediately. And he says, above all the other livestock of the fields, you are cursed and on your belly you shall go and all the dust you shall eat. Now, listen, we can debate whether or not snakes had legs. But that's not what Moses is going after here, Right? He may have had legs. He may not have had legs. How many legs did he have? We don't know, right? He may have moved like a salamander who has legs but still slithers on the ground. We don't know. That's not the point. The point of the curse is he has been made low. That he will crawl on his belly and he will eat dust. Now, it doesn't mean his diet is made up of dust where he got like fried dust, boiled dust, you know, shrimp dust. No, no, no. It's, it's he will eat dust. That means he will perpetually be unclean. 
He will never be able to be made righteous. He is, he is perpetually unclean. He is perpetually in a situation where he will be humiliated over and over and over again in all the days of your life. And then he says, in the midst of this, in the midst of this curse, God makes us a promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And this is where it gets really interesting. The next word in the verse is he. He, so the offspring that he is talking about that, that, that will have enmity with the serpent is a singular person. It is a singular male. And it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what, is, what this is widely known as, and, and, and I'm going to say a word and then I'm going to say what it means, is the, proto, the proto-euangelion, which is the first gospel. The first gospel promise that man will defeat the serpent, right? Because in in this battle, in Genesis 3, round one, serpent wins. But there's going to be a round two, and we already got the victory. That's what they're saying, right? And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, you may have a question here, if if you're kind of skeptical, and maybe even a little cynical, like I am. You may say, why do we have a series called the crushed head and the bruised heel if the text says the bruised head and the bruised heel? And that's true. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. There's no differentiation. The crushed head and the bruised heel, as, as the name of our sermon here, as the name of our, our series here, is, is an interpretive step. There are, there's only one difference between the, the gospel promise that God makes for us in Genesis 3, and that is the location of the bruise. Right? He says, he says this offspring, right, in which it's, it is he, it is singular, it is, uh, at the end of the day, it is Jesus. We will see that in a minute, right? He will bruise your head and, and you will bruise his heel. And so what we have here is we have a blow to the head versus a blow to the heel. And Romans 16 elaborates that for us. In Romans 16, verse 20, it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his foot. Some of them may say under his feet. And so what we have is, is the location of the blow is everything, right? The snake is on the ground. The snake is defenseless. It doesn't even have arms. The best it can do is strike at man's heel. But man, particularly Jesus, man can crush his head. That is the promise. That is why uh, some, uh, some translations just take that interpretive step and say crushed head and bruised heel. And in the midst of the curse, God promises victory through Christ. The rest of the Bible is the telling of that victory and how it unfolds. And then God turns to the woman. Now notice it says, notice he cursed the serpent. God does not curse Adam and God does not curse Eve. But he says, and, the, and, and to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth and childbearing. And in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is, this is the, the result of the fall for women specifically. And what it is and what, is God, what God is going to do for both man and for woman is he is, going to, he's, he's going to show them that the very foundation for what they do, the very foundation for, uh, on which they perform their roles is broken. And the rules and the roles 
that they are, that they are commanded to, uh, to adhere to are now far more difficult than they were ever intended to be initially, right? And so women, as the only one who can bear children, right? Women uh, will now bring forth children in pain, And the word pain here is a specific word for pain, not the usual word for pain that could be better translated translated as trauma. Right? The Lord has called man to be faithful and multiply. I don't know how you think multiplication happens, but it happens through childbearing, right? We should know that in the church. We got a boatload of kids. And he says, and this will be traumatic. This will be trauma for you in pain you will bring forth children then he says your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you your desire for for independence will be there but you will not get it your desire will be to rule over your husband but your husband will actually rule over you one thing i do want to make clear is that the husband being an authority over the wife not Men in general being an authority over women in general, but the husband singular being over being in authority over his wife singular. That is not part of the fall. That's the way that it was in the garden, and God said that that was very good. But the desire, the desire to be contrary to your husband, that is sown into the woman's heart, and 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 that the that the man shall rule over her is a result of the fall leading many commentaries to say that the word rule here is a, is a very cruel word, that man will seek to dominate women. And if we look at many societies across the world, we can see that the fruit of that is true. Where men dominate a society and women are treated as objects or as lesser. I wish I had more time to go into that, but... It's a, reserve, it's a result of the fall. <laughs> and then to Adam, he said, and, and, and to Adam, he gives, he gives a longer kind of discourse because Adam bears the most responsibility, right? And he says to Adam, he says, because you have listened to your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. So Adam himself is not cursed, but the ground is cursed because of Adam. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, uh, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, so he gives Adam a longer discourse, but he's saying, look, Adam, because you have listened to your wife, the ground itself is cursed. Creation itself is cursed. We will learn later that creation itself groans for redemption. It groans for things to be set back right. And what he is saying is, Adam, buddy, you like to eat? Guess what? Eating just got way harder than it was before. You were free to eat of every fruit of of the tree of the garden. You were were free to eat uh, abundantly. But guess what? Because of you, the ground is cursed and in pain. Just like in pain, women bring forth children. In pain, man shall eat of the ground. In pain, you will be the provider. It will be hard for you to actually perform the role that God has given to you to provide for your family. 
And he says, in, instead, of, instead of lush trees and fruit beyond what you can eat, you're going to get thistles. You're going to get thorns. And you shall eat of these plants. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of the ground you were taken. And then he says, and you will return to dust because you are dust. And it is just a laughable failure that man sought to be like God and God has reminded them, you are mere dust. You sought to become like me, and you have failed so much. Let me remind you of your mortality. Let me remind you of your, of your fickleness, of your inability to understand. The very, the very foundations that I built for you and that I gave for you out of, out, of, out of grace have been fractured because of you. The fallout is pain. The fallout is suffering. The fallout is you having to work hard and by the sweat of your face, barely getting by day by day, securing enough food to simply make it to tomorrow, to secure enough food for tomorrow. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Verse 20, it says, The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And here's the second act of grace in Genesis chapter 3. Well, I guess the first act of grace is God just not killing Adam and Eve and being like, well, uh, you know, two down, let's start over. But it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The Lord God made for them proper coverings. These aren't fig leaves. These are, these are clothes made out of skin. Now this tells us, this tells us a lot. This is, this is a rich statement. And we've already gone kind of long. I'll make this brief. But what the, what the Lord did is the Lord made for them proper clothes. Clothes made out of leather. Clothes that will actually protect them. And it says that he clothed them. That clothing is only used in two other situations in the Old Testament. First, it is used um, when kings clothe honored guests when they, when they come over to visit or also when Moses clothes Aaron in, in, in the high priest vestments, right? Those are the only two things. And so, so God, by clothing them, is treating them like honored guests, is treating them like priests, which is hints to what God will make them one day, but also that these garments were made of skin and that blood has been shed by God in order to give his people proper coverings of their shame it's another preaching of the gospel it is another preaching that our redemption will come through the shedding of blood what we don't know yet at this point and what the israelites didn't know is that it would be god willing to shed his own blood and we finish out here 23 to 24 and then the lord god said behold the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out uh, his hand and also take of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the God sent him out of the Garden of Eden, uh, Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man to the east of the Garden of Eden and placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way that guarded the way to the tree of life. And so... 
I know you got a, you got a question. You're saying, wait, 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 hold on. Well, there was a tree of life, and if we ate of it, we were going to live forever? Yes, apparently, apparently there was. That's, that's all we know, and we didn't, so we didn't live forever. So just, just to answer the question, yes, there was a tree of life. Also, apparently we were free to eat of it. We didn't. I don't know how it works, but we did not eat of it, and we got kicked out of the garden before we had the chance. So that's why we don't live forever. That's why Adam only lived 900 years, you know, instead of forever. Um, but it says that he, he drove them out and he drove them east and he placed a cherubim guarding uh, the way to the tree of life. And this is, this is where Adam and Eve are, are, are left off in chapter 3. Driven out of the presence of God. Driven out of the Garden of Eden. And blocked from being able to return. The result of sin is both, is both spiritual and physical. Some of it was immediate. Some of it was delayed. But what we have is multiple, multiple assurances that this is not where the story ends. We have multiple promises that God will deliver his people, that God is pursuing his people. And we haven't, we haven't actually seen wrathful, angry God yet. The scripture tells us when God is, wrath, when God is about to be wrathful. It says, for, for Israel has kindled the wrath of the Lord and X happens. That hasn't happened. What we see in Genesis 3 is the fall of man, the rebellion against God's creation, and the beginning of God redeeming his people And what we're going to see is in the sufferings of Christ, most of these motifs, if not all of them, are actually present. There's a tree, the cross that God, the cross that Jesus hangs on. There are thorns in his crown of thorns. There's a temptation by Satan which Jesus overcomes. And there is life when previously there was death. I'm going to read Romans 5, 12 through 21, because I think Paul says it far better than I can ever could. And then we'll pray. Starting in verse 12, Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, trespass much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for so many. For the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, trespass Death reigned through the one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so too one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, 
the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 